only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my pleading This morning's scripture reading is found in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. If you're using the Q Bible in front of you, the blue one, that will be page 943. And as you turn to this passage, keep in mind that in verse 14... Paul has just informed the believers that sin would have no dominion over them because they were not under the law, but under grace. And he's going to now continue that thought in verse 15. We're going to begin in 15 then. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. But just for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Word of God. Well, as we have seen in our past couple of weeks in this section, uh, Paul is basically telling us that if you habitually uh, present yourselves uh, to something or someone, you become a slave of that something or someone. So that habitual obedience to anything leads to slavery. And he's very specific, make no mistake, if you give yourself to sin, You become its slave, and that slavery always ends in death. He's speaking, as we've said, into a situation in the ancient world, especially in the urban centers where people got into financial difficulties, disaster. And sometimes just so they could eat and be housed, they would give themselves to others as their slaves uh, so that they could be taken care of. Now, I want you to just think, imagine, because this is the kind of contrast Paul is trying to present before us the, the two slaveries that uh, present us as, as human beings. And 
This is the, the basic point that I'm introducing is that slavery is a condition of humanity. You've got no choice as to whether you're going to be a slave or not. It's just who is going to be your master. What is going to be your master? But imagine two masters in this situation, uh, in a physical situation in the uh, ancient world. And with the first one, you're told of the tender care you're going to receive from this master, the excellent living uh, situation, the respect, the training for noble work, the satisfaction of accomplishment, how you'll be included in the family and treated as one of their own how you will inevitably be re, uh, receive your opportunity for freedom and you'll be released with a continued relationship and favor of this family so that you will have more than a marketable trade with full connections within the community and therefore the full opportunity to support and raise a family of your own and take a place of honor in your city. That's one master. But the other master, you will be dead before the second year. Because nobody of the dozens of slaves that have served this master, nobody has made it to the end of the second year. and Most don't make it to the end of the first year. Now, that's the kind of contrast Paul is trying to set before us to say slavery to sin ends in death. Slavery to God ends in life. If you don't give yourself up to the will of God, you have given yourself up to the will of sin and you've become a slave of sin. You have surrendered yourself to sin. And so if you put yourselves in the hands of sin to be your Lord and Master, it's, it's a way to say, be my Savior, be my refuge and comfort. It's as though we're depending on sin for our lives, trusting it for our significance making disobedience our idol and our God. That's the only alternative to not obeying God. And that's the kind of contrast Paul is seeking to give us here. So the more you give yourself to sin, the more it pays your, the wages of death, as Paul says at the end of this section. The more we give ourselves to sin, the more we ruin our humanity, the more we ruin our integrity and our faithfulness, the more we ruin our psychological well-being and our wholeness as people, the more we ruin our relationships, our responsibilities, our privileges, our true enjoyment and benefit of life. Sin is generous. It will never fail to give you your commission that you've earned. And the final retirement package is disintegration of your humanity in judgment. The absence of all relationship, all fellowship, all earthly enjoyments and comforts. And a complete loss of the favor of God. Such are the wages of sin. And so... Slavery is the condition of humanity. Will we give ourselves up to God's gracious rule? Or will we refuse that rule and give ourselves away to sin and its destruction? There is no other choice. There is no other way to live. There's no neutrality in this section or anywhere else in Scripture. So, slavery is the condition of humanity. But he says here, we have been brought into a new slavery already. We as believers have been brought into a new slavery. And some of you know what it's like, some of us know what it's like to 
move to a new city, to get a transfer, to make a choice, to take another job. And you're resituated, you're living in a new state, perhaps a new city, you have a new driver's license, new tags, a new school, new neighbors, new ball teams, new church, new job, new grocery store, new post office, new bank, same old Walmart. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Carl Barth said about this passage, it's, it's declaring to each of us, you have been cut off and separated from sin. You have been snatched away from the dominion of sin. You recall we talked about Andy Dufresne and his being in the prison in the movie Shawshank Redemption and from the novel. And one morning he was just gone from his cell and they discovered this 20, 30 foot tunnel that he carved through solid concrete and how he crawled through a 500 yard uh, drainage pipe, a sewer uh, pipe. And he was gone. He was forever gone. He was on the beach on the coast of Mexico where he remained for the rest of his life, it looked like. Gone. And that's the point here. You are gone. You were Slaves of sin. But he says uh, in verse 17, Thanks be to God that you who were slaves of sin, you've become obedient. And you've been set free from sin. Now you're slaves uh, of righteousness. And so uh, this being slaves of righteousness really is a part of what he says in verse 22 of being slaves of God. It's really a synonym here, slave of God or slave of righteousness. And we should see righteousness as an aspect or attribute of God. Righteousness is God's powerful acting grace that brings about our salvation. And so though we were under the power of sin now by His grace, we're under the power of His acting grace to transform us. What a glorious power to be under. The righteousness of God that is acting for our good, for our salvation. His righteousness brings about our forgiveness and acceptance, and it brings about not only our personal transformation, but ultimately brings about the transformation of creation itself. And so God's righteousness is His coming on the field with victory, glorious victory and rescue for His people. And He says, you've been transferred from being a slave of deadly sin to being a slave of the acting work of God to save you. How glorious God's transfer is. And this is encouraging that... We don't need a self-reliance on our commitment, so to speak. We submit in joy and faith to this powerful, acting, transforming goodness of God as opposed to the destructive, deadening, subhuman, dehumanizing refusal of God's goodness that we were under before. Now, by His grace, we are embracing the goodness of God that powerfully works in our lives. That was our strange and weird destructive mentality to refuse the goodness of God. As Jesus said in John 15, they hated me without cause. Why would we resist him? Why would I not love this God? Why would I not give myself up to him? But no, I was a slave of sin. And by God's grace, I've become a slave. We have become slaves of his righteousness. 
You could say we were in a dark prison of sin. Now we're sailing off the coast with God's powerful grace at our back. We're in a different place. By His grace, we're in a different place. So all of humanity is slavery of one kind or another. We've been brought to a new slavery. And Paul emphasizes here, we're going to dig a little deeper each time as we talk about this slavery. It's a slavery, and this is no surprise, but we're going to explore it. It's a slavery primarily of obedience. Well, what else would you expect? But it's interesting how he underscores it. In verse 16, we expect him to say this. I pull my, this, these are my reading glasses like this, and then they're my regular glasses like this. That's, what, that how, that's how that works. <laughs> I need new glasses, but that makes them work good. Okay. Um, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, and notice the contrast, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, and you expect him to say either of sin, which leads to death, or of maybe righteousness. But he says, you either obey sin or you obey obedience. It's purposely redundant. You see, you either obey sin or you obey obedience. And the point is that obedience is your new master. That is, this is a dramatic way of emphasizing that obedience is the essence of your relationship. Paul places the entire Christian life under the title obedience. And in all of our talk about faith, sometimes we don't realize it is a faith which always obeys. It's of its essence in its love and devotion and trust in God to obey this God. And so he says, when you've turned from sin, you become obedient to obedience, so to speak. John Stott says slavery demands a total, radical, exclusive obedience. Once we've offered ourselves to him as his slaves, we are permanently and unconditionally at his disposal. That's what it means, isn't it? I sign off my life. I don't call any shots anymore. It is not my will. It is your will. This is your life. These are your eyes, your ears. This is yours, top to bottom, inside out. That's at least the commitment. Never perfect, but let's don't think it's anything other than that. It's never perfect, but that's the whole essence of what it means. So the life under grace is characterized by obedience. We caught a flavor of that, didn't we, in the text that we uh, read as a response to our confession out of Titus uh, chapter Three, And there in Titus, uh, he says, the grace of God, notice uh, chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. So it's grace, it's salvation, but this grace, this favor of God, this salvation of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. So grace and salvation aren't against renouncing ungodliness. They're not against faithful, specific obedience. They support and bring it about in our lives, God's grace and salvation. And so all of life can be, all of our lives can be called this because He is Lord. 
He is Lord. I, I did a course. I don't have to do the word study. My computer does the word study, but on the word Lord, kurios, Old and New Testament, 9,300 and something times. It is the name of God. The name, Old and New Testament. And Christ is the one who inherits the kurios, Yahweh. Yahweh is translated into kurios in the Greek in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the kurios. He's Lord. We can't deal with him except as Lord, as King. And so Paul is able to summarize in Romans 15, 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. That's his summary of his whole ministry. This is what has happened. In my proclaiming the gospel, I've brought the Gentiles to obedience. And outside of that, Paul would say, well, there's no salvation. There's no grace manifesting itself in a person's life if it has not begun to bring them to obedience, which is to set them free from the destruction of sin. What salvation is it? What if I was in the water and sharks were surrounding me and I had seaweed and oil from the uh, shipwreck and they pull me out and they clean me up and then they throw me in with the sharks? Well, that would be forgiveness, but no change in my life. No, I've got to be rescued from sin. That's what destroys me and my relationships. And so salvation, grace, means rescue from sin. He shall, he, you shall call his name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins, from their sins. And of course, that's never perfect in this life, but we must never think that that's just an extra in this life. It is, it is essential to our salvation. Now, these, this statement in Romans 15 is a summary statement. It's a way of looking at the whole ministry of Paul, but it's still a little bit of a shorthand, and I think we need to see his expanded statement. Now, he gives it in Romans 1, verse 5, so it's right at the beginning of Romans, and then the last couple of verses in the whole book have this phrase. So it's the, it's the pillar of how he looks at the gospel, because both of these are summary statements about the gospel and what Paul is out to accomplish. He says, we've received, this is Romans 1, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. So faith joined to obedience. That same phrase in Romans 16, the next to the last verse, 26. He says this gospel, the mystery of Christ that was hidden in days in the past, now it's been fully revealed through the gospel. He says this is made known to all nations now according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And so I think it's very important that we understand how Paul sees obedience and how it is vitally connected to faith. And we could say these two things about this. Faith is our obedience, okay? That is the obedience that he looks for in us. And you can look at it another way. Faith always obeys. Let's just first look at faith is our obedience. From the beginning in this temptation of Eve, we know that Satan sought to break our trust in God. To break our trust. Humanity gave in to Satan's lie, and we've had a settled suspicion of God ever since. 
That's why we won't entrust our lives to Him. That's why we don't love Him and adore Him. We don't trust Him. We have a suspicion of God. We became blind to His goodness. We would not honor Him with trust and love. We don't come to Him. We don't seek Him, Paul says earlier. We run from Him. And so God's action in Christ by the power of the Spirit wins back our trust. In the cross and empty tomb, we see Him by His grace as He opens our eyes. We see Him as trustworthy. And that our anchor for faith is, the, is there for the whole of our lives. Paul argues this way a couple of chapters over. He says, if he did not spare his own son, but freely gave him, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? You see, my trust, my, my being convinced of the love of God in Christ convinces me that no matter what my circumstances, I don't have to read God's love in my circumstances or not because sometimes my circumstances are terrible. I read my love in the death of Christ and that defines everything for me. Trust is restored. The cross is the foothold of trust. And I define His care and love by the cross. And so the more and more we trust in Him, with more and more of our lives as we look at the cross. We trust Him with our work and finances and our children and with our responsibilities and with our cares and pressures, with our difficulties and our tragedies, our upheavals, because we've begun to trust in Him, because of what He has done for us in Christ. We trust Him with our past and our present and our future. And this is the obedience he looks for. Trust me, trust me, trust me. It's the obedience of faith, Paul says. That's the beginning and whole, it's kind of the alphabet, the ABCs of obedience is faith from beginning to end and every word of obedience is formed by faith. Trusting him. As Jesus himself said in John 6, when they said, what must we do to do, be doing the works of God? And he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so that's the first part of obedience of faith. That I must see, that's the first thing I must always do is trust this God. Trust him, trust him, trust him. That's the sacrifice he looks for, is that sacrifice of trust. But to look at it another way, the obedience of faith means also that it is, uh, it is, faith always issues in obedience. Faith always obeys. And so the more I trust Him, the more I'm convinced of His love and kindness, the more I put myself into His hands and hold nothing back from Him. And you can't trust one that you don't know. You can't trust one you don't perceive. And you can't trust one you don't admire, you don't adore. Godly awe and joy over Him is always a part of our trust and obedience. Obedience is not mechanical. It's not a detached rule that we keep. Paul says in verse 17, you became obedient from the heart. It's real. It's inside and out. There's desire and conviction. This is who you really are. You want to obey Him. It's intensely relational. It's only because... We've begun to trust ourselves to Him. 
Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And so knowing him and trusting him and loving him, obeying him are all bound up together. That's why in verse 22 it says, I'm a slave to God. You see, it's personal. I'm a slave to him. It's my relationship to him. I love him. I want his will. It's like we're being restored to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And so by His grace, that becomes true in our lives. You are my God and nothing else is. There's this freedom of allegiance to you. And that means I have no other allegiance. Nothing else I have to obey except God and all that He tells me. And and this is also why it speaks about righteousness and obedience leading to holiness Holiness has to do with the process of being more and more set apart from God, increasingly God-centered, increasingly God-directed, cut out, carved out for His exclusive use. And so, this obedience is an obedience of faith. It is, is really the way you describe your whole life, but to get the larger picture, it's this life of giving ourselves up and trusting ourselves to this God whom we adore. But at the same time, it's important to notice, as Paul underscores in, verses, in verse 17 especially, this obedience from the heart, this obedience of faith is to specific teaching. Specific teaching. It's not as though I just have this... Uh, idea of who Christ is, this idea I make up or concoct who Christ is, but it's according to the specific content of the gospel. That's one of the reasons in our questions this morning when we ask, do you uh, receive and rest upon Him alone as He's offered in the gospel? Now, part of that is to underscore that He's offered, He's available to you. He, He makes Himself over to you. Do you receive this one who offers Himself? But it underscores this is not a Christ of your making, of your own concoction. You don't just decide what Jesus is going to be like and you have a, a relationship with that idea of Jesus. Okay, But it's Jesus as revealed in the gospel. Who he is uh, shown t- uh, to be in that word. And you get that feel in verse 17 when he says, You were once slaves of sin... Now you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, or we'll see, delivered. The form of teaching, doctrine. Yeah, you became committed to doctrine, to teaching. And it's amazing how often teaching is downplayed, is not important. We don't need doctrine, we just need Jesus. What Jesus are you talking about? Define that Jesus. You tell me anything about him, anything at all? Well, he's, well, that's teaching, okay? That's doctrine, teaching of Jesus. And the, the way the word teaching is used in Scripture, it's obvious that it's simply another word for the gospel. As in Acts 5.42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as Christ. The essence of the gospel is, uh, of teaching is the holding forth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so there's a specific content. 
who Christ is, what God has accomplished in Christ. And so the transfer from being slaves of sin is a transfer to this glorious gospel teaching to which we are giving ourselves. Paul summarized his whole teaching and preaching in Corinth. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So it's a focus upon the full revelation of Jesus Christ Himself. And it's fair to say if you have no relationship to His Word, you can have no relationship to Christ. Because that is how He conveys Himself to His people. And that's specifically what Paul says. Your slavery to sin ended when you became obedient to that doctrine, to that teaching. How can we ignore that teaching if it is the means of our rescue? And so, it's, it's not here emphasizing so much a set of rules, although there are commandments associated, but it's saying there's a message about redemption, We conform our lives to the redemption of God. We want to live out our story within His story of redemption. We love because He first loved us. We become obedient to this person who's revealed in Scripture. He's the essence of this teaching. We give ourselves up to this redeeming God who is revealed in the good news. We're conforming ourselves to Jesus Christ Himself. So we don't want to depersonalize it by talking about teaching, but we don't want to say there's no content. There's no no, no specifics about Jesus. The gospel, as one is written, is a living authority for the whole of life. It completely determines the life of the believer. And this word standard, the standard of teaching, is the Greek word tupos. And it it basically originally meant a blow that is struck by a print or an impress of a seal. Okay? So an image that is created. And And really, the word means the teaching's imprint. You were made obedient to the imprint or the, the uh, impress of the teaching of God's Word. So that the, this teaching, this gospel shapes us and molds us to this stamp of itself. It's the form or pattern or imprint that is brought about. And it suggests that this Word is a transforming Word in our lives. And not only is there this transforming imprint of this word, notice how he puts it. We would expect him to say, in verse 16, to the standard of teaching which was delivered to you. This word committed basically means delivered. It's the same word by which Jesus delivered him up, himself up to God. But he doesn't say, as many times it says, there's a tradition that has been delivered to you. He says, you were delivered up to the tradition. You were delivered up to this teaching. As it were, you were handed over to the impress of his teaching. Glorious? By his power, he handed you over to the powerful impact and the molding of the gospel of the teaching of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's why he says, thanks be to God. He doesn't say, I commend you because 
you gave yourself. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. It was God's doing in your life that brought it about. And the the passive verbs here mean that as well. You were set free from sin. Same thing in verse 22. You were set free. You've become obedient. This has all been brought about by God's power. And so... We're slaves of a new master. We're delivered uh, unto God. He's transferred us from the realm of sin to this realm of obedience to the truth. And so we've been delivered to this new power as a slave is handed over from one master to another. God has handed us over to the teaching and molding of the gospel in our lives. I love the way Leon Morris puts it. He says, the rabbis would think of themselves as masters of the tradition. He said, but now we are subject to, we are subject to the tradition. And he puts it this way, they don't have godliness. Godliness has them. That's a comforting word. It's not that you have control of godliness. Godliness has you by God's grace. Godliness has you. The gospel has you. God's righteousness has you. It's God's glorious power that we rest in. And that's what he's saying here. That thanks be to God, though you were slaves, you are no longer. God has delivered you up. And he will deliver up anyone here who trusts this God. And this... This new slavery marked by obedience from the heart, obedience to a specific content of the gospel, and obedience brought about by God finally issues in eternal life, as he says. Probably when in verse 16 when he says obedience that leads to righteousness, this is that righteousness spoken of many times to picture for us the final glory like 2 Timothy 4.8. So righteousness is used in several ways here. But in 2 Timothy 4.8, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Or Galatians 5.5, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We wait for the new heavens and the new earth, Peter says, in which righteousness dwells. And so it's another word for glory. It's another word for protection. It shows that our glory and our happiness is bound up in being the image of God. See, you're restored to your happiness and fulfillment and wholeness as a human being when you're made like God in that final day. We long for that day of glory. We long for that day to be finally set free from sin. We long for the crown of righteousness. And it will be ours because God is the Lord over all. And this gift, as he says, to end here, the wages of sin is death. One of the better known passages, certainly in all of Scripture. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Usually we, we quote this in, as we're speaking to somebody about forgiveness and we are stressing. We usually use this with Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life. It's true. The free gift of God is eternal life. But notice the verse before. You become slaves to God. The fruit leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. 
The gift of God is the comprehensive gift of salvation. See, it's not just forgiveness. It's not just justification. That's not even being dealt with in this passage. The gift of God is that you were a slave of sin. He delivered you to his gospel. His righteousness dominates your life and will issue an eternal life. This is his gift for you. Complete salvation, A to Z. It's the same emphasis in Ephesians 4. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And though it, of course, includes forgiveness, but Paul's emphasis there is, but he raised us up. He seated us with God. We are his workmanship created for good works. The emphasis in both places is God's gracious activity to change us from being dead, or in this case, slaves, to becoming those who are given up to the will of God. And it issues in eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life. The comprehensive gift of salvation. Will you trust that God? Will you, seeing the choices of masters, take that master and not the one whom if you serve, you'll be dead in two years? Just using the illustration we began with. Serve the one who promises life. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, the only way we will ever give ourselves up to your will, the only way we will ever trust you, is your powerful work in our hearts. Give us grace even now. If there any is anyone here who still is suspicious of you, who still looks at the death of the Son of God for sinners and is not convinced of your love, may they be convinced even now May they be convinced that this one who has loved me through Jesus Christ is one who can be trusted with the whole of my life. Oh, bless us, Lord. Bless us that we will show forth the obedience of faith and show ourselves truly to be your glad slaves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?